perspective, with the aim to contribute to the discussion and to the debate, making known the changes carried out and taking place, analyzing what they mean and how they influence the future politics in the monetary and financial uh, union uh, within the European Union. I sound a little bit optimistic if we consider that this presentation is bound to become an annual appointment with the euro for all those professional and institutions concerned about this development. Uh, you know that after the European elections, the European Union is in a crossroads and we have to face new challenges. Uh, and one of these challenges will be the monetary union and many others related measures that have been to be in place in the near future. And this is what the panelists is going to discuss. Last year uh, has been especially delicate for the European Union. The Brexit is a process that is not resolved yet, and we hope it will be resolved in October, when the new Commission has to be uh, in place. The protectionist tensions in the trade policy from the United States and the disputes arising between the United States and China uh, have to reivindicate from the European Union perspective the role of multilateralism. Uh, it seems that after the European election, populism and nationalism has been contained. If we look to the result of the European Parliament, two-thirds of the European Parliament are uh, members that's from centre-left, centre-right, green and liberals, that are pro-European uh, Union integration, with different perspectives and different measures, and I think in the panelists, uh, the panelists will be sharing these uh, different perspectives, but uh, it will enrich the discussion, of course, for the future. Faced with this scenario, uh, the only answer should become, in my opinion, for more Europe, uh, more flexibility and more common actions, the role of the multilateralism, and of course, to promote reforms to enhance monetary union, fiscal uh, policy and convergence, um, promoting a structural reform for a more inclusive, social inclusive growth and, of course, sustainable uh, financial and investment. I will end uh, my intervention here. I am really glad to be with all of you today and I will be following the different intervention above all the discussion that I, I hope will be fruitful and very interesting for all of you. Thank you very much, and I think you have now the, the floor. Thank you, President. Okay, I, I don't know if it's uh, all right with the uh, mic, with the uh, volume. Okay, just uh, add just a few things on top of uh, Mr. Garcia de Quevedo's uh, speech. Uh, well, first of all, good afternoon to everybody. Uh, I'd like to join him, I'd like to join the President in thanking Bruegel its director and team for once again organizing and hosting so warmly this presentation in this prestigious European institution. And of course, thanks to all of you joining us here, present, uh, all, your, all of you present here and those following uh, us online. I don't have to stress the fact that at the Fundación de Estudios Financieros, we're extremely proud of this publication and thankful, very thankful to Fernando Fernández as its director and to Fundación ICO as our partner in its funding and development. Our main idea is that we deem the Anuario as something quite unique, at least in Spain, 
where unfortunately there is a lack, to our belief, of continuous research on a yearly basis of the Euro's issues in a single purpose publication. Actually, to put it in a very simple fashion, the yearbook is an annual revision of where do we stand, what has happened, where are we leading to. And this is extremely convenient for practitioners in economics, finance and law, academics and policymakers, and obviously for the public in general as well, as fi financial education to citizens stands at the forefront of our two institutions' objectives. And this is also extremely important, as there is no doubt that the euro is sliding swiftly into becoming a political tool, as well as being an economic and financial anchor for Europe's institutional architecture, which was obviously its original purpose. Not by chance, more pages, as you will, uh, as you will see, more pages of the yearbook have been assigned to political issues in these past editions. But where do we come from? Way back in 2011, we reached the conclusion that we needed a real in-depth, intellectually sound and practical guide to follow the events happening in a Europe in turmoil. For this purpose, we asked two prestigious professionals uh, named Luis de Guindos and Fernando Fernandez to do the job. Finally, Fernando took the burden as Mr. Guindos left to take a top post, uh, uh, top post at the Spanish government. And Fernando came up with the first of a series of publications that ended up becoming the Euro Yearbook in a joint effort with Fundación ICO, to whom, let me stress it again, we are extremely thankful for their commitment and for their professional work. So, to finish off, let me get back to the questions I posed to you. First, where do we stand? It is obvious we stand at a crossroads, as the president has just mentioned, where politics and politicians will define what's next. Something I believe it was never in the minds of the single currency's founding fathers. Next question was, what has happened as of lately? The last news don't seem quite reassuring. Maybe the reason for this is that we haven't done our homework, as we should have. And my guess is that this is going to be at the bulk of today's discussions. And finally, where are we leading to? And for sure, that is what Fernando is thinking right now uh, for next year's edition. This will obviously depend on a mix of economic and political circumstances going forward that we can enumerate today, but that obviously as well, we cannot predict in their full in, uh, outcome. Maybe the only thing left is to put forward if we're positive or negative on this future outcome. But of course, this is the job for today's participants in the discussion. Thanks so much. Thank you both for your words. Uh, Bruegel is also very glad to have you here. This has become quite a regular exercise. Uh, I will now give the floor to Fernando Fernandez, director of the annual review of the Euro, to present the main results from this year's study. Fernando, the floor is yours. Thank you, thank you Ines. It, it's a pleasure to be here. I think it's the fourth year in a row that we present this uh, year report in, in, uh, in Bruegel. And, in, and we're very glad for that, and it's, it's, it's been really a privilege to, to do it here. Uh, it's becoming customary, so probably some of the things that I say you may have heard before, because unfortunately, despite all this optimism on the table, I do not share this optimism. I think we missed another year. And if you have the time to read the report, uh, you will see that there's some, of a, some sort of a pessimistic uh, undertone in it. In fact, it's been criticized because of that, probably because expectations are very high. Before I do that, 
Let me start by again thanking in particular uh, Jose Carlos and Javier, the Fundación Icon, Fundación de Estudios Financieros, for something that may, say, may, may seem uh, very uh, simple to you, but it is really unusual in Spain to be able to get a sponsorship for eight consecutive years for, uh, for any sort of research program. That is extremely unusual, and of course it doesn't speak about the quality of the products, but about the, the faith that the sponsor have and the problem that is still with us. You know, should the euro not be a problem, the would have been stopped, discontinued many years ago. The fact that uh, these people are still uh, uh, sponsored it means that they still think there's a problem. So that's another, <laughs> another important consideration. Okay, every problem has a solution. So let me put, let me put the, 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 the ball on the table by quoting three individuals that I'm sure you all know. Uh, one is Larry Summers, uh, and I do this on purpose. Um, he, at Sintra, uh, last year, in, in August 2018, and this ECB's uh, uh, Jackson Hole uh, um, uh, comparison, which is taking place these days, I think. Uh, and last year he said, at least I read it on the Financial Times, saying, through history, we have seen countries without a central bank, but we have never before seen a central bank without a country. Uh, that, of course, is in the minds of everybody when they look at the euro. This is a central bank, which is, has many special characteristics, but it is very unique, in which it doesn't have not a country, but even a group of countries that speak with the same voice on relevant issues. So that's one point. Second quote, Carmen Reinhardt, uh, which probably most of you also know. She was the co-author of the famous book, uh, uh, what was it, the name? Uh, years, uh, 500 Years of Financial Falliness. Uh, this time, is, this time is different. You know, this time is also different, I would, I would say. Uh, so Carmen, on, on a publication on foreign affairs, also in December 2018, said, the first lesson of the financial crisis is how complacent policymakers had become. The second, that a system of fixed exchange rates can turn into an economic straitjacket. This also has some sounding ideas for what is going on in the euro. Maybe if we keep it at being a very special system of fixed exchange rates, then we do have a straitjacket and a recession in the making for good. So that's another point I want to make. The last quote comes from an a European, for a change, uh, from an Italian, uh, in, in the honor of, of Gabriele, uh, Romano Prodi, uh, a well-known uh, um, European uh, politician and, and professor. And he, he wrote in 2001, 2001, right at the beginning of the euro. I am convinced the euro will force us to introduce a new set of instruments for economic policy. It is politically impossible to propose them now, 2001, but someday there will be a crisis and new policy tools will be adopted. Well, the crisis was there. We, we've seen it, we suffered, we went through it in our different capacity. Some people here that had the responsibilities of central banks laugh when I, when it, because they know what I'm talking about. Uh, we did change significantly, dramatically. Uh, anything, you know, if you compare the European monetary and the architecture, the institutional architecture of the Euro area today to what it was in 2006, uh, even to what it was in the, originally in the treaty, uh, it's a whole different world. However, my point is we still have a long way before we make it sustainable and stable. And that is what the Euro is about, the Euro report is about. The Euro report is basically about making the Euro better known and understood and also confronting it with its weaknesses and necessary reforms. The book uh, is a collective piece of work. What I've tried to do over the years and again this year is to combine uh, people from different areas of, of expertise from 
policy makers, regulators, uh, practitioners, academics, uh, even politicians and, and, and even lawyers, uh, to give us their perspective on what they think is uh, has been happening during the year and what needs to happen that hasn't happened yet. And this year again, I have the I think I have the luxury and the privilege to have been able to put together a group of individuals that is uh, uh, extremely good, remarkable uh, for all sorts. Of, some of them are with me here. I will not mention them all because I will forget them. Uh, but I'm proud of them and and I really uh, thank them. I, I have not thanked them enough for being able to put together this book. Now, what I do in the paper is something a little unusual. No? Uh, they write their own chapter, and as they know, then I do. I write my executive summary, which does two things. One, uh, summarizes their main ideas, uh, and two, confronts them or argues with them or even denies some of the things they say in their paper because I don't like them. So I try to convert their paper into my paper. And I do some sort of a policy paper, and this is what executive summary is about. After trying to be intellectually honest, summarizing uh, the different views of different authors, then I give my own views. So you sh if, if you read the report, uh, you should look at executive summary as my own exclusive responsibility. And in fact, sometimes what I do in purpose is bring out different points of view on that same issue, or the benefit to the reader, that can then look at the issues. And in this particular uh, Edition. There are a couple of issues where this is the case. One is Italy, and one is within it, actually, uh, where we have different views on, on, on some issues. Uh, some is with Santiago uh, on some other issues, on the, on the issue on central bank digital currencies, and in some other instances. But I think this is probably better because one of the things we have to understand is this is an ongoing process. This is a work in progress, and there are different views, and we need to be able to confront them. Expose them, confront them, and then come to a, a solution. So let me summarize very briefly the, the paper. Uh, I will not go into all the detail of the. Of the I, want, I, I was tempted to go article by article and saying their main idea, but then I decided it would be too long. I, I will try not to be very long so we can have a, a fruitful discussion. So let me say that, uh, that there are three different parts of the, of the, the book. Uh, the first one is what, what is called the, the existential debate about the euro, or what I call in, in more, much more colloquial terms, what does the euro, the eurozone, or the euro want to be when it, when it grows up? I mean, when we leave back the adolescence and we become mature enough institution, what do we want to be? So this is the old discussion about what is monetary policy, is fiscal policy, what is banking, you know, what is... Now, in that, in that, uh, uh, in that part, you will find... Uh, um, a couple of articles that are, well, all of them are very good, but I will, there's, I, there are two articles that are very significant for what they say and for the authors. And one of them was uh, uh, signed by the current governor of the Bank of Spain. Uh, he wrote it when he wasn't governor of the Bank of Spain, so he had a, a better, let, let me say, he writes on his own capacity. Everybody here in the paper writes on his own individual capacity, does not commit. Uh, the institution that they represent, which is very important so that they can speak more freely. Uh, and uh, he makes a very, uh, a very interesting point, uh, which I will go back to it, uh, and it's about the needs, the, 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 the quote-unquote failure of the Eurozone to resolve its basic problem, and that is to make the ECB a normal, regular central bank. What does it take to be a central bank like the Federal Reserve or like the Bank of England? Uh, 
The other paper by the former Minister of Economy in Spain. So, um, and, and I was hesitant to mention this because it, it looks like the paper is very institutional, and it, and it is not. It is not. A, it does not represent the view of anyone in Spain except mine, uh, and the authors in each particular article. And you will see points where they would disagree with it. And I will mention some of this. But the first, the, the first part of the paper, I think it does, of the book, it does put on the table all the issues. So you will hear and you will be able to read comments on uh, uh, eurobonds, on fiscal rules, on the regulatory treatment of sovereign debt, on how to proceed with banking mergers and acquisitions and creating European banks. So all these topics are addressed in different parts of the book. The second part is an analysis of two things, monetary policy in Euro, the Eurozone and the financial system, the banking system, to, to be precise. And you will, you will see two articles that give a very uh, a quantitative description of not only the profitability, but also the liquidity, the capillarity, the, capillarity, uh, the solvency of the, bank, the Spanish banking system in comparison to the European banking system. So we'll give you a very good image of what are we talking about. Uh, and, and, uh, and this is an issue that, uh, this is a part of the paper that I also think is very interesting because it does defeat some of the conventional arguments, you know. Let, let me mention just one, one data. Uh, there's plenty of data uh, uh, in, the, in the report that I, that I will not use in, in this uh, short presentation. But even you one that I think is extraordinary because it came out in some of the conversations that I had before. And it's an idea of the extraordinary effort the Spanish banking system has done to restructure itself. Uh, the Spanish banking sector has spent both private and public money in the neighborhood of 300 billion. That is over 25% of the GDP in restructuring the bank. Both public money with the, uh, in the uh, agreement with the European Union, the famous agreement, but also pr private money, both in terms of additional capital increases by commercial banks and provisions, losses, that were passed on to the shareholders. Uh, so I think it is fair to say this is a very large figure. It's not very different from the average cost of a banking crisis as large as the one we had in Spain in many other countries. But I think it's important to keep it in perspective, especially when we're asking now the banking system probably to pay an additional price. And I will go into this in a, in a minute. And the third part of the report is completing the European Monetary Union. So there's chapters on the fiscal union, chapters on the banking union, uh, also very interesting chapters there. So as I said, I will, I will restrain the temptation to go into every chapter. Let me go to the very final part of the paper, which are my 10 lessons of the year, what I call the 10 European lessons, uh, in, a very, um, in, sort of in a very rapid way. And every time I do this quickly, I will be much more, uh, um, how shall I say this? Uh, it comes out much more radical than what the actual thinking in the book is. Uh, every time you try to summarize your main ideas, you go to the conclusions, you don't go over the reasoning, and therefore it sounds uh, a little bit more radical. So my first conclusion is we have a political problem. The political problem is uh, we still think that we can muddle through the crisis as if nothing had happened. We need a huge amount of political capital to use on completing the European Monetary Union, and the political capital is basically not there. Uh, uh, actually, uh, there are some doubts on the will 
that the Europeans have to make the euro survive. And unfortunately, these doubts, these hesitations have re-emerged this year. I understand that the political landscape is very complicated, but I do also believe strongly, and I think that most of the, uh, if not all of the contributors to the, to the report would agree with me, we also need very strong leadership for the new times. So I just hope that whatever outcome comes from the changing of the guard at the European institutions, uh, that we do not commit the typical mistake of making sure that we appoint weak people from weak countries so that then we can uh, use them as instruments for our national political benefit. So that's the first, my, my first lesson. The second is the ECB needs, and, and I will not, actually I will only talk about five lessons. The second is the ECB needs to normalize itself. The European Central Bank, as I said, needs to be a normal central bank. Uh, we have to solve the, what Mohamed El Arian comes the only game, uh, tells the only game in town, no? which in the case of the ECB is extraordinarily important. I take, I'm very skeptical of this sort of beautiful, adherence to how powerful, strong, and lucky is uh, Mr. Draghi, and how, how strong and powerful and competent and intelligent and smart and uh, he is, and how lucky are that we have him. Remember, we used to say the same thing about Greenspan, and then we had a problem when he left. Uh, I mentioned this point because I think the ECB has to be less presidential. And second, it has to be to stop being the only game in town. We cannot count on the ECB taking the right decision at every time because politicians, when they meet at the different summits, they don't do their job. You know, we're still talking about the same things we used to talk 10 years ago, and we just say, oh, well, forget it. We have whatever it takes. We have missed whatever it takes to make sure that nothing will happen. Well, this game, you cannot play it endlessly. First of all, Mr. Whatever It Takes is leaving. I may say fortunately, because not, not, not that I have anything against Mr. Draghi, we, we will miss Mr. Draghi, but I think we have to learn to have institutions beyond the mandate of the current person. You know, only institutions endure, and only the euro can only endure with a strong institution. So that's one thing. First, the euro, the ECB, has, second, the ECB has to deal with the zero bound. And I'm very skeptical of some of the proposals, and in fact, the, the paper by Santiago on central bank digital currencies brings up some of these points. So that the skeptic, I'm very skeptical of these proposals that with some sort of digital gimmick, we can go beyond the, the zero bound. You know, we can use some sort of digital currencies to make sure the negative interest rates can be as negative as possible. And now I was surprised to see this paper by the ECB last week, uh, where they come out saying because 5% of the deposits, yeah, because 5% of the deposits in the European banking system are subject to negative interest rates, corporate deposits, then negative interest rates can be as large as you want. Remember, we're talking about 5%. The interest, 95% of the deposit base of the European banking system is not subject to negative interest rates. So there is a limit, unless we're saying that everybody will have their amount, their money, their holdings in, uh, in, the, uh, in the central bank in a digital currency. So anyway, you, you can read that discussion there, because I think this is the issue for the future. When, when uh, Javier was saying, what am I thinking about? What I'm thinking about discussing the zero bound in some depth in the next edition. And then we have the contradiction between monetary and financial stability objective for the central bank. You know, I, I know that the central bank is doing this extraordinary effort to tell the banks that Negative interest rates are good for them. Uh, you know, they make them more profitable. They make them uh, to give more loans and, and have less uh, less non-performing loans. Well, the fact of the matter is that every time there's a rumor in the market that the ECB will 
strengthen of continue with the negative interest rates, bank valuations fall dramatically, as we have seen and we will see for the current time. So maybe the market is not in the same vein as the central bank or as some of the uh, uh, academics. Just, just a point to keep in mind. Second point, uh, risk reduction. Now, risk reduction strategy is necessary, it's important. We've done a lot, by the way, uh, as you probably know, and, and, uh, and it's, it was in one of the papers coming from the, from the, last, from the, from the commission, that paper. We have reduced almost 50% the stock of non-performing loans in, in Europe since 2013, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, now, risk reduction is necessary to make sure the banks are profitable, but cannot be and will not be a precondition for a sustainable monetary union. It cannot be, because monetary union is about risk-sharing, it's about risk mutualization, it's about money flowing freely from places where there is excess savings to places where there is excess investment. If we stop that, uh, if we insist on reducing uh, the exposure of banks to, uh, to risk or to sovereign risk, then we will have a problem. Second. Uh, there's a, there's a, a very interesting uh, comment on two articles in the paper, one by Fernando Restoy, the chairman of the Financial Stability Institute, today, saying that uh, sovereign risk has not been responsible for problems in the banks in most European banks in this crisis. So the loop between sovereign risk, exp excessive exposure, therefore creating a bank problem, is simply a false pretense. Uh, it's not only, I'm not saying this, it's uh, him saying it. I, I fully agree with him. So, completing banking union, third point, is urgent. Now, what does completing banking union mean? We all know what it means. We just don't do it. It is. You know, we do need a European deposit insurance mechanism if we want, as I always say, if we want the euro to be the same asset, regardless of the strength of the uh, uh, sovereign where the bank is located, if we we want to make sure that the euro deposit in a good Spanish or Italian bank, of which there are some, is an asset of the same quality, at least of the, the same quality, that the same euro deposit in a bad German or Finnish bank, of which there are some, we need a European deposit insurance mechanism. We can play around with financial gimmicks as much as we want. We can do all sorts of beautiful exercises. But money will only f move freely if we have a European deposit insurance system. More so. Uh, if we were to judge the success of Banking Union by its original goal, which is very simple, and the, origin, the original goal we can summarize in, in, in a very simple two object, in two very simple goals. One, creating European banks, an integrated European banking system requires European banks, and two, decoupling banking risk from the host country risk. If we were to judge the Banking Union for those two goals, we are very far from that. We are very far from that. Uh, so we need more mergers and acquisitions of banks. Now, it's interesting to see that this don't happen because, besides all the things that we know, because there are some regulatory obstacles, some re regulatory impediments. Today, we still do not provide for risk geographical diversification between Euros, uh, within the Eurozone as a risk mitigation factor in banks' uh, risk assessment. Uh, there are also some structural issues that are interesting. Now, how are we going to have mergers and acquisitions if a significant part of the European banking system is not subject to competition? It's simply protected by the state. It is indirectly 
state-owned banks. Uh, and I'm not talking about Spain or Italy, by the way. I'm talking about other countries that everybody has in their mind. You know, but a very large part of the banking system is outside competition, and therefore is not forced, is not subject to the discipline of the market. And therefore, why would you proceed to any merger and, and acquisition in that respect? And third, do we have excess capacity in the banking system in Europe? Now, we do have excess uh, banking capacity, and we need more merits and acquisition, not only to create European banks, but also to reduce the size of the European banking system. Then we will need a European insolvency procedure, a liquidation procedure, not only a European resolution system. Because we need to be able to liquidate banks with the same rules. We should not be able to use national rules to either avoid resolution or gain an uncompetitive advantage. Last point and I'll finish here. Strengthening the fiscal union. Uh, just three very quick points, three very quick sentences, not even a point. We need simple, enforceable fiscal rules with, well, with well-known consequences. The trick is about being able to simplify the fiscal rule. We propose in the paper something similar to the expenditure rule that is used in the Spanish system, but this is just an example of something that can work. The point, important point here is for the fiscal rules to work, we need any single European citizen to be able to understand the rule without a lot of smart economists explaining what a, a, an output lag is or potential GDP is and getting into heated discussions uh, and knowing in advance what the consequences are for not meeting the fiscal rule not starting a long process of negotiation and what happens, what doesn't happen, etc. So single enforceable fiscal rules. We need a fiscal capacity at the Eurozone level, uh, be it the budget or be it whatever. I have a very strong position against this fiscal capacity being at the ESM today for two reasons. One, because the ESM is not within the Euro legal framework. It is an international agreement. Therefore, it's an inter it is like granting the fiscal capacity to the IMF, to the European uh, international uh, agreement. And second, more importantly, because it is a political decision. It cannot be a technical decision. And the ESM, and three, it is a highly political decision the way it is conducted, because it still requires unanimity of the members before the money can be used. So I think that is a mistake. And then we will need a safe asset for the Eurozone. Now, once we have a safe asset for the Eurozone, and I know there are many proposals on the table, I think we have learned that financial creativity does not solve the problem. We need a Euro-safe asset, and that is called a Eurobond, and you can call it whatever, but it will have to be a Eurobond. Uh, for many reasons, to conduct monetary policy, uh, without fiscal tell, to, to operate normally in the central bank, but also to have capital markets union. Without a safe asset at the Eurozone, we will not have the depth and liquidity of the capital markets that we need for the Euro to have this beautiful role of an international currency. So there is also uh, a lot of time and attention dedicated to this issue of the safe asset. By the way, once we have Eurobonds, then we'll have to deal with the issue of what I call subnational credit events, uh, call it sovereign debt restructuring mechanisms of the current national debt. We need, and the paper explicitly says that, some sort of Hamiltonian moment to compare with the, with the US monetary uh, union. But that can only happen once we have save us. Okay, so uh, I stop here. Sorry for taking so much of your time. 
And I hope I've given you enough points to discuss in the agenda. Thank you. I think that's indisputable that we we have a lot of material to cover. Following up from your quite comprehensive overview, uh, that to a large extent reflects what you can find in the Euro yearbook. Okay, so now it's time to proceed with the discussion, and I'm very happy to have by my side Isabel Riaño, uh, currently Deputy Director at the Cabinet of the Spanish Minister of Economy and Business. And on my left, I have Gabriele Giudici, uh, Gabriele is the head of unit NDG ECFIN for the European Commission. As a moderator of a panel on EMU reforms, I am thrilled about the timing of it. As you all know, we just uh, came out of a Eurogroup meeting last, year, uh, last week. Uh, the next two days will be also decisive with the European Council and the EU Summit. I am sure that both of you have a lot to add on this. Uh, I will give you each 10 minutes also to comment on some of the points that you may wish to comment following uh, Fernando. Gabriele, would you like to start? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me today um, to speak. As you say, it's a very, uh, very interesting moment now. We are in the middle of uh, important meetings, so it's uh, good to go uh, to back to these issues with a longer-term perspective, which is uh, in this, uh, uh, what is put in this Eurobook, which is a very rich. There are many, many, many good ideas, many interesting ideas, some controversial ones. So it's it's really good to look at these elements and try to put ourselves in a bit in perspective. Now that's also what we at the Commission have been doing in the last uh, period. I'm not sure you all have seen it. Um, uh, we, as a Commission, we have issued a communication just a week ago. Uh, uh, which uh, uh, takes stock of the progress made over the last four years since the five presidents report was released and uh, where in fact we try to assess uh, what is happened, what is ongoing and what still needs to uh, be made. Um, in fact there is also a very nice speech which I would encourage you to read uh, which President Juncker just delivered in Sintra, which is a very interesting one, and so it's also his own personal take on the last uh, elements. And uh, as he says, there are only two survivors of, of the events of uh, you know 25 years ago. One is the euro, the other one is himself, and there's only one which will last uh, forever. Right? Um, so it's interesting to look into that. Um, so let me just try to catch some of the comments or the messages which come from this report, um, uh, which Fernando just also mentioned, to just give a bit of a perspective. I mean, there is no time to go in detail of all these measures and all the uh, elements, but just to give a little bit the, the, you know, the sense. Now, as a disclaimer, I have to say that uh, not only that I'm you know, working, uh, talking on my personal base, but uh, that I'm a very optimistic person in general. And so I tend always to see what can be done, rather what is not working. But of course, being optimistic on what needs to can be done, it requires a, a realistic assessment of the situation and you know, identifying where the problems are. Uh, now, one very important element is uh, political will. That's your very first point. Um, now, I have there a little bit of a perception that uh, actually this political will is forming. After a long time where in fact people were just looking elsewhere, 
or looking very much inward in their own country, I think there are enough uh, elements now which are convincing people that this time is over and we need to take care of ourselves. Uh, I think there are both external and internal reasons. Uh, you know, on the, on the global one, uh, you know, we have uh, the tweets coming around, uh, the decisions to, you know, uh, reverse a major agreement concerning Iran. Uh, we have Brexit pending, and then we have you know populism internally, which is rising, but likely not as much as we you know many feared. Uh, was in the election results actually, I see them in a positive light, which gives us you know gives us a signal, but also the opportunity to deal, deal with that. So my sense is that. Perhaps we are at the beginning of a cycle where actually finally things will happen after many years where we've been calling for. Um, uh, now, when is the push? Uh, need, 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 when does the push need to come? I was just discussing before, and I think it's a nice metaphor which I came up with, which is it's like when you're giving birth. Uh, you can't push too early. It's just painful, and nothing happens. So we need to be ready for the moment, and I think we need to know where the moment arrives. Uh, we need to see that the belly is growing, and we actually make sure that the belly grows in the right healthy way. And so I think that's where we are. I think uh, you know it really depends on expectations. People have been waiting perhaps for too much too soon. Uh, last December was one moment. This June summit is another moment. I think the letter centeno to the to the president centeno the Eurogroup to the to the leaders is pretty much telling that you know, there's a lot still to be done and then many things are to come back in December. So it's a question of expectations. Um, and I think if one takes in a perspective where in fact, uh, uh, in fact, it's just to go back to the to the to the. Uh, to the discussion, to the to the speech of Juncker, I think it's very important. He's saying, you know, when when the crisis really unfolds, unfolded, you know, people could go back to something which was prepared long before on the Werner plan in order to create the euro. It was 20 years before it was already prepared. So it's a question of when is the right moment. So let's see where it is. I personally see. Uh, movements in the right direction rather than the wrong, although you know it's, uh, it's a bit of a zigzag uh, in many cases. Now another point, and yesterday was, you know, we had this Brussels Economic Forum, we have the special session which is dedicated to Tommaso Padraschioppa, and I very much like one uh, sentence, which in fact I had the, the honor to hear directly with him in a, in a closed meeting, which is, you have to work, uh, as I say, you have to have an active patience. So you have to be ready. You work until the moment arrives where people turn to you and say, what do we have to deal with this problem? And so I think that's where we need to place ourselves in this, in this, this context. I think that's where we need to be. And I think if one puts yourself in this perspective, I would not call the last year as a lost year. I think there's been much more done than people realize. Of course, sometimes it doesn't deal with the big flashy things and you know, items, perhaps it's even less than that. But there's a quite a lot of elements. I mean, besides the, the two areas which are under discussion now at the summit, uh, which is you know, the SM uh, treaty reform and, and the BIC, which you know people have different views on what this is delivery compared to expectation, but it, it still reflects a lot of work which is done and which needed to be done. Uh, now, not everything is closed yet. Uh, although many points have been, uh, uh, there is an understanding, but you know, I will not exclude that when there is a bigger deal at one point, some of the elements which were untouchable currently might be also looked at again with the new eyes. 
Then I would say on the banking side, there's been quite a lot. The banking package is very, very important. The, you know, the regulation and NPLs, you know, the steps on, on, on risk reduction and REL, all this I think is, is gone ahead. Um, there's also one important process. I want to go back to this because I think it gives a good signal, but I'll come to back to it later, which is the work on the banking union. So the, actually the EDIS, the European Deposit Insurance Scheme, which is the creation of this uh, high-level working group. Uh, which, uh, in fact, uh, reported to the Eurogroup. Um, in theory, it was supposed to be a, you know, a confidential reporting, but it's, uh, if you, I invite you to look at it because it's on the website of the president of the Eurogroup. It's quite interesting. Um, but I think it gives an indication of how the discussions to go ahead in order to be successful. So I will, I will go back to that. And then you know another item which you know President Juncker uh, uh, in fact launched both of these initiatives. One was the you know the mentioning two years ago that you know one of the elements for long term is the safe asset, and so we had you know announced exploratory work which is not public, but you know we are you know looking to these things. And then of course the international role of the euro. This initiative is a very important one. I think it's. Uh, it uh, it's marks a, a clear change, which actually has been backed by the report made by the ECB last week, which for the first time is a normative one, let's say it's pretty much saying we need to do things, and they support the Commission, what it's doing, and so it's no longer benign neglect. So I think all these are novelties which go in the right direction. So if one wants to focus on what still remains to do, I think there's still quite a lot. Uh, I think one has to put yourself in the perspective, himself or herself in the perspective to 2025, which is still the one which put forward for the in our reflection paper, um, and in fact in the first president's report. And in that, I mean, there are a number of elements. Now, I think it's important to see also how much of these elements can be addressed in isolation, or in fact how much of this can only be addressed properly once you look at the full picture. You know, one recurrent discussion is about the, sim the, the simplification of fiscal rules, okay, or the implementation of fiscal rules, <laughs> or, you know, the ineffectiveness of it. So all this, yeah, very well. We have announced uh, that, you know, there is a review of this two-pack and six-pack, which we are working, there's a, the European Fiscal Board working on this. But the question is that even if you come ahead with some potential elements of reforms. Would this be the right moment to enter negotiations on this once many other elements of the package are still unclear? So um, I put it as a question. I think there's still uh, something mm -hmm. to be addressed. First, let's do a review. We'll see what is really needs to be done. I mean, there are many ideas which go around. I think some of them also put forward by the Commission. Uh, but uh, the, the, the question, I think, for me is important is really the, the approach. And, as I said, I will come back to that in the context of banking. There are other elements that are important for the medium term, which you know we indicated, uh, and um, on the institutional side, I think we need to do significant steps forward. That's what you know we're saying as Commission. One important element, which so far was not very successful, is the fact that the DSM uh, should be brought under the EU legal framework. Uh, for us, was an important urgent step to be taken during the crisis, but to be a condition that is to come back in the legal framework. We are struggling to reassert this principle, so we'll see whether eventually it will be mentioned explicitly in the treaty. So far, it's not the case. Then we made two other proposals, which I think are also important. And um, 
uh, it's about the institutional setup, which is uh, uh, also you know, seen in a longer term perspective, but probably might be relevant in the shorter one, which is you know the fact that the institution would be good to deal with the uh, with let's say the treaty assignment of competence, where in fact there is a national competence on the conduct of economic policies, but the European competence on the coordination surveillance of economic policies. And this is now presented or result in a struggle. We had the you know, we had the case of the uh, you know in the, in, in the courts. There is now the Pringle case we have on the SM also, which looks at that uh, on the on the on the yeah on the SM, which looks at, at these elements. So basically, there are one way which we suggest would be useful to address is by creating a position of a person who is able to represent both the Commission and the member states and the Euro internationally, uh, in order to be you know the real uh, engine of decisions which remain formally in the hands of the respective institutions uh, and where it's necessary in the member states, but I think there will be much more coherence uh, in, uh, internally, internationally. And this will go also along with the necessity to uh, consider one uh, uh, further evolution, which is the idea of creating a treasury at European level where, in fact, this could help in the financing in the market. Uh, on the international role of the euro, you mentioned that it was a novelty, but there, there are, we are doing work as concerns consultation with the markets. But there's one element which is also important, and it's really coming back as a feedback, is that you can favor the, the use of the euro transactions, but in between operations you have to store it, you have to store your money somewhere, and you are not going to uh, do transactions in euros if at the end you have to store the money in treasuries, right? So you need the assets in Europe which allow to do that, which brings to the question of whether you can create a safe asset. Now, this question, in fact, is seen as a, has been always been seen as a very long-term one, but I must say I'm a little bit heartened a little by the tone of the discussions, which is, and we can see with all the different, uh, you know, not red lines, but differentiation of positions into this work on the on the banking union, which I think is really a telling novelty. I think it's the first time in years that people have gone out from the short-term assessment of their own positions and how they can gain out of the negotiation with the member states, where it's basically a zero-sum negotiation, where you know, I, I, what I gain, you lose, and what you, you know, you gain, I lose. And that is inevitable when you just go in a very narrow set of discussions. And so what is for the first time taking place, and there are hints in the report uh, of the, the highly working group, is that there is for the first time a focus on the steady state banking union. This is a, an interesting formulation, steady state, because it's, there is no specific horizon, but it's far enough for people to accept that the current position or the current position of others will no longer be there because everything will be changing. Will be, you, know, you cannot foresee who will be in which position. And so this is helping to focus the minds on the fact that, uh, well, a banking union, which is a proper one, has to be very different from the one we have now. If we want to compete globally, you know, we must have banks which are a little bit larger than we have now because of, you know, if you compare to large US banks, the, four, the top four US banks and top four euro area banks, the, the, first, the former ones are twice as large in terms of capital. And if you take the Chinese banks, they're actually three times larger than ours. Uh, 
So this has to change, and to change, they have to change, create, you know, operate in a pan-European uh, banking system with pan-European banks themselves, and this requires really a totally different perspective. So what has been interesting there is that, in fact, the discussion has showed uh, that um, in order to advance on something which is very concrete, which was the ADIS discussion, you need to look at the function of the banking union as a whole. And this has led to the identification of relevant issues for the discussion. Now, some things which you see as very far away, but in reality, substantial for any movement on any of countries on different fronts. And so there, there are four pillars which have been highlighted for the moment as basis for further technical work, which has been what, you know, the mandate now the Eurogroup for the next six months. And basically there is the ADIS you know, and legacy uh, issues for the banking system. Then there's a home host and, uh, uh, no, questions. Then there's, uh, you know, the implementation issues of supervision and resolution. And then there's a question of sovereign exposures, which I actually tend like to discuss as mainly as functioning on the national bond markets or the bond markets in Europe, which some people see it as a, an approach to discuss regulatory treatment of bank exposure, but at the same time it also look, forces you to look at the question of whether the current national-based bond market is actually satisfactory for a European uh, monetary union, where in fact we have demoted national bonds to, uh, uh, because they no longer have a lender last resort and we have not created a European level. So the question there is, uh, you know, we finally have at the beginning of an approach where all these elements are starting to come on the table. I believe that the others which I just mentioned also will have to come back on the table. And only when all these things are recognized as relevant by everybody and we've done enough technical work on each of them, then perhaps you can start to see the shape of you know, the basis for a political discussion, which I think will take time. I don't think we're there, as I said. At least the next six months will be nice in this direction. Whether that will be sufficient, I don't know. But, okay, I would say that that is the only way you can go ahead. Otherwise, uh, you know, we'll just keep stuck uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the current, in the past approach last year, where in fact the progress was difficult. I should stop here, thanks. Thank you so much, Gabriele. Isabel, I have no doubt that the last days have been busy for you. <laughs> and uh, I, I would like to hear your views in a context where more and more people are turning towards the, the Spanish perspective and what the Spain has to say in the context of these discussions. Well, thank you very much. And first of all, I would like to thank Iko and, uh, and uh, Fernando for bringing me to this table uh, where I've been... Uh, for, for some uh, some years at the Bruegel table, so it's very uh, I'm very happy to be back again. Uh, first, the disclaimer: this I need to do. Uh, <laughs> I will be, of course, speaking on a personal capacity. Um, these are very political issues and complicated. So, uh, whatever I say here are are, are my views. Um, I think, like uh, like other speakers, that this uh, discussion is especially interesting at this moment this week. We're having on the one hand the Eurogroup that took place last uh, last uh, Thursday, Wednesday, uh, fr Thursday, Friday, huh? deep into the night, um, as it was usual during the, during the crisis and when, when uh, difficult things were discussed. So that is, I guess, we could say it's a positive thing that ministers are discussing difficult things. 
Uh, we have the Euro Summit in two days. Uh, of course, I think the Euro Summit is going to, um, I mean, there, there are other things in the European Council that will take the time of our leaders, but, uh, but it's important that the uh, Euro Summit also takes stock of what uh, has been done at the Eurogroup level and, and give guidance and, and, uh, and push things. Uh, we, have, we are at a moment where institutions are being renewed. Uh, we will have a new commission, we will have a new president. Of the, I mean, everything is, as you say, uh, in, a, in a state of, uh, of waiting, but also in a state of uh, let's initiate a new cycle and a new, uh, um, a new, a, a new, um, a new moment. And I think this is important too at this stage because of the importance of political, political will, as I say, nothing will move unless there are, there, this political will is on the table. And then we're having a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say noise, but a lot of information coming from uh, the Brussels Economic Forum, from Sintra. We're hearing uh, uh, tweets and retweets and uh, comments uh, about comments. And, and so this is bringing a, a lot of things on the table. And I think that this makes this presentation of, of this excellent book. And I'm very happy that in Spain we're, we can have such a research every year. I think it's very important as uh, Spain is a very pro-European country and we are uh, always at the uh, um, leading uh, the uh, European solutions. And I think this is, I mean, this is an easy thing to say, but it is true. Um, and, and I believe it is uh, more so true now. So uh, uh, I think that brings also a, a, another dimension to what I'm saying. Um, I think that what needs to be done is clear. We all know it. It's been there on the table for, for years. It's been written in the five presidents' report. Uh, we're very happy that the Commission has launched this communication to remind us of uh, all these elements that need to be, uh, uh, to be completed to make sure that uh, we reinforce. I mean, we, we talk about the uh, EMU deepening. Like, again, I mean, <laughs> well, this is all there and it's moving and it's moving. Um, I was, I was. I, mean, I know that Fernando is very uh, provocative, and uh, so when I was going through the book and through his uh, executive summary, I said, "Oh well, Fernando is really, uh, is not very positive. It's a disappointing and hazardous year. Uh, European excitement has vanished completely." These are these are quotes from the no, no, from the. Like uh, but I, I wanted to put them, bring them forward because it's um, it's as always the glass is full or or half empty. The European ideal is no longer attractive. I mean, these opposing visions of Europe, nationalism, old fractures uh, resurfaced, weak European Commission. All this, of course, is taken out of context. So um, <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a bit of a provocation from my part. But, uh, but I, um, this is true. But at the same time, I, 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 it is true that one has to be optimistic and that uh, Things are um, difficult. I mean, we have to negotiate with 19 countries within a complicated context. Uh, slowly, it takes enormous amount of energy to move a little, uh, but we move. So uh, that's the important thing that we have to uh, to bring uh, to take from uh, from uh, what has been happened last year and what has happened in the in the last Eurogroup. I mean, integration has never been easy. And the more integrated you are, the more sovereignty you have to concede. So the harder it is, because it touches bone, as I say. You know, when you're ready to touch bone, it's, uh, it becomes more difficult. 
And um, from an economic point of view, um, the five presidents' report brings about what could be a perfect monetary union. But not, nothing is perfect in life. So we have to strive for the best and, 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 and try to, uh, to keep working towards whatever we can move forward. Uh, so I very much like this active patience uh, concept I had here. We have to be resilient, persistent, realistic. Uh, nothing is ever perfect. Political processes are difficult. Uh, but at the same time, we have to cherish every step forward, and, uh, and this, is, uh, this is very, very important. Every step forward is a battle won, and uh, what is important at this stage is that everything is on the table. I mean, nothing has been um, taken out of the table, and all the elements that you were talking about, that we need to move forward, because, of course, um, that's how compromises are made, and that's how countries... Uh, think that can 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 see the whole picture because if you see things uh, in compartments then it's, it's even more difficult to advance and i think this is important for the for this political will and uh, and to avoid very sterile uh, sterile um, discussions like this risk uh, reduction versus risk sharing i think the concept is here is that we are moving uh, towards a better situation <laughs> of course we have to share and uh, and um, I said this in a chat the other day that we have this sharing is very difficult, and uh, that's what uh, kids uh, you know when you go to uh, to the um, you bring your kids to school the first thing they you have to learn to share, it's very difficult but but it's it's for the better good so this is important and I think that uh, one important thing in moving forward and I'm being a bit I mean more political than economic. I mean, the economics of things are, are clear, is that we need to build trust. And uh, when there is trust, red lines can move. And uh, of course, we were coming from a, from a very difficult period of a crisis where there's been a, um, a destroyed capital of, of trust that needs to be rebuilt. And this is very important. So it is important to keep things on the table. Uh, as you were saying, for instance, Eddie's Oh, again, the road, political roadmap for the political roadmap for the roadmap of the political roadmap. Sure, but we have um, the elements of what could be the steady state of it. So there's something that we can look forward to, and those elements are on the table, so we can talk about them. So that's very important. Um, some elements, I think, on uh, also on the uh, on the political front that are important in this. Uh, at this moment. First of all is that, as uh, Jose Carlos was saying at his, uh, in his uh, presentation, uh, the ex expected rise in populism uh, within the European Parliament has not materialized as uh, the omens were telling us. I mean, of course, there, are, there is populism, but the three main, three, four, and I'm taking in the Greens, of course, uh, groups can, um, can agree on moving forward uh, in this integration, and this is very important. Then Brexit. Uh, yes, Brexit is a disaster, basically for the British. Huh? That's, uh, and, and then if we want to take something positive away from this Brexit is that it has united uh, European countries. I mean, the, the uh, member states have been united in dealing with Brexit, and when uh, people see what mm, the disastrous consequences that getting out of the union can bring, maybe they will be more willing to uh, to move forward. So that's that's an important thing. Um, 
of course, we have these geopolitical trade wars, China, the US. So those are elements that should bring us, again, uh, closer together. Uh, because, I mean, it would be, I don't think any country believes that alone in this world they will go anywhere. So I think it's important that the, uh, this idea is, is reinforced. And then there's this uh, political moment. I mean, in your, in your executive summary, Fernando, you're saying that the uh, Franco-German powerhouse is faltering somehow. Uh, it's true, and it's uh, um, this Franco-German, um, how would you say, uh, pair is important to move forward, but it's not sufficient. And what is clear now is that it is not sufficient. And I think that they both know that it is not sufficient. And this is very important for a country like Spain, because um, we have to, we're going to have to act more collectively in terms of uh, moving the agenda forward. Uh, so far, I mean, Commission has been putting proposals on the table, on the European Monetary Fund, on, uh, on a lot of things that, uh, with, with no response from member states. Member states have responded when uh, Germany and France have uh, met and made declarations. Uh, well, it's, that's great. We are very happy that uh, Germany and France make, you know, uh, put forward, uh, move things forward. But I think that now it's very important that they bring along other countries. And I think Spain really, uh, and I'm saying it uh, because I believe it. I mean, we have, uh, we've been absent from the institutions for a while. We've gone through a very difficult moment. I mean, it's not uh, because we don't have a will to, uh, to, um, to, to, to um, contribute to the agenda, but because we were going through a very difficult uh, situation and we, um, our political capital was was a bit more complicated, but I now now I think that uh, we're back we're back and uh, and that both Germany, uh, France, and others uh, and um, um, this driving seat has to be uh, more comprehensive in terms of uh, of dealing with different uh, uh, sensitivities and uh, and certainly we are I think playing this part already at least uh, at the Eurogroup. Um, now, if we, I mean, you all sure want to reveal very big secrets of what happened during the Euro Group. I think the result is there. Huh? It's on the uh, term sheets of the uh, uh, of this uh, budgetary instrument. It's on the uh, ESM treaty changes and the precautionary um, instruments that have been uh, reinforced. Uh, I'm not going to go through what is on the table. Um, it's, it's there for everybody. Um, what I can say is that, of course, um, it is difficult to, to agree. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of meetings, a lot of uh, Eurogroup um, dinners, a lot of uh, Euro working group meetings. But we have, finally, and it might be not very much, but we have the reform of the treaty with the backstop. We have the precautionary instruments. Uh, we have uh, these steady state EDs to look forward to. Uh, so those are very important, um, I think, advances. You know, little by little, as I was saying, uh, battles are won. And, uh, and we are talking about a budgetary instrument. Um, what I would highlight from, from that discussion is that we're talking about a Euro budget. This was anathema uh, years ago. So this is on the table. What is on the table might, we might like more or less. Um, some of us might think that is certainly not what we're thinking about. 
some others say, well, uh, this is a concession so that uh, we can have something that is called budgetary instrument on the table, but it's there. And, uh, and this is very positive. Um, in, in, in this discussion, um, Spain has been uh, very pushy, very ambitious, because we truly believe we need this stabilization capacity. This is something that for other countries is more difficult to, uh, uh, to swallow or to accept or to, they don't believe this is uh, an important um, feature. So it's, it's uh, always you know, very complicated to, uh, to combine something uh, that looks like a budget. So now we have at least an instrument. We have an instrument that is based on investments, reforms too, but I would like to underline the investment part because, you know, investment can be a big stabilizer when there is a crisis. Uh, there's talk about no conditionality more than the one that is attached to the, um, um, to the uh, structural funds. And uh, we have elements that can modulate some sort of stabilization, uh, co-financing rates, um, we have um, a contribution keys. I mean, still, of, still a lot of work is needed, but there is something. To my, uh, to my mind, I think it's a bit disappointing. Uh, we would have liked something more important, something more with the word stabilization, something where. But uh, but we're getting there, and uh, I mean, we're getting somewhere at least, and everything is open. I'd like to recall that uh, to remind that the Commission also has. Uh, a proposal on the table that has been quietly forgotten, which is the, the European Investment Stabilization Function. Well, maybe that's something that we can bring back to the table and to complement this uh, instrument. Um, so um, I don't want to take much more. I don't know how, how long have been, I have been speaking, but but um, I mean I want to bring this positive. Uh, vibe to the table uh, in the knowing, of course, that everything is difficult and that uh, uh, sometimes it is frustrating, but uh, we, we need not uh, be swallowed by this frustration and, and keep moving. And, uh, and just, just to finish, let's look back 10 years. Uh, where were we 10 years and what have, has been built in 10 years? And in terms of historic perspective, 10 years is nothing. So. Let's uh, let's take this as a, you know um, an optimistic view of what is going to come. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel. I think this is a wonderful tone to end up our first round of uh, presentations. We have 15 minutes ahead of us, and as always in every Bruegel event, we are keen to hear from the audience. But before I will give you the time to express your of course, interesting questions. I would like to give the panelists uh, an opportunity to respond to some points that may have been raised. I will be very strict with time, so uh, be short, be concise. Uh, ideally, two minutes each. Ideally, let's try. <laughs> so who would like to go first? Maybe Fernando. Yeah, can I, can, can I uh, I'll try to be quick. Uh, uh, we've, we've seen a perfect example of the, the, the bottle half empty, half full. So that, that, that stays there on everybody. And of course, uh, I think the, the, the position has, or the different perspective has a lot to do with the institutional responsibility that one has. You know, being, being in the academia gives you the luxury of just uh, seeing the bottle half empty. And that, that is totally cool. But let me remind you 
when you mentioned this, this idea of the budget uh, ideas and anathema, uh, a thought came to my mind. You know, it was 2011 uh, when I was discussing these issues in, in, in Berlin at the uh, Minister of Finance. Uh, and everything was beautiful, talking about the euro, until I decided to mention the World Banking Union. Uh, and at that time, a very prominent member of the German uh, banking establishment, raised a very, very big man, and quite small, uh, raised and said, I will dedicate the rest of my life to make sure the banking union does not happen. Uh, well, so yes, it did happen. But in the middle, uh, a, a tremendous amount of suffering and loss uh, took place. So my concern is, yes, I know there's some movement. Uh, we now are very proud because the budget idea is not an anathema. Uh, we can discuss it. My problem is that two years ago, in the report two years ago, I already said the Commission has mentioned this idea of a European budget. Good. So now it's come from the, the, the beautiful world of academics to the world of real life, to political decision makers. You know, two years later, I still have to say the same. It's there somehow, fine, but nothing has happened. And I'm afraid nothing will happen. So let me just skip to my last comment, uh, because uh, it, it, it links to something that you both have said. You know, this idea of building trust, uh, and I fully agree. Uh, and it has to do with, with your idea of, of uh, how do we get a grand bargaining uh, solution. And I fully agree with this. I mean, this piecemeal uh, approach to, to complete the European uh, Monetary Banking Economic Fiscal Union will not work. And I think that's, that's something we have learned. To have, it's, been, it's taken a painfully long process to learn this. Uh, and I'm very happy that you mentioned this idea of the steady state of banking union, because I opened my report for the last five years saying what a normal banking union looks like. So let's see what we want to build. You know, how this thing has, how's this wild animal that we're creating has to look like to be able to be sustainable. So let's have a clear image of the end game. And once we have the end game, then it will be much easier to get there. So yes, I'm very happy that it's taken only 10 years to decide that we need an end game picture, so fine. Problem is, you know, we are still very long from agreeing to this end game. And that's what I have, and, and so let me, and I, and I finish here, I have many, many other points, but just, just let me finish with something that is in, the, in this report. And as I mentioned, I'm very happy that it's, that it's mentioned here. And this this idea of the grand bargaining. We do propose, and we've consistently proposing this from at least the last four reports that I remember, uh, a way to build this grand bargaining. And this is making risk reduction and risk sharing compatible by advancing forward in parallel banking union, that's EDIS and risk reduction, that is uh, sovereign with fiscal union. Because we cannot have this idea of the fiscal union being sort of a, an obligation of somebody to pay for the others. It also has to mean an obligation to respect the rules that we have given ourselves. So if we are able to put together on the, at the same time, moving forward in resharing with fiscal union and uh, moving forward in, in this grand bargaining in uh, meeting the budgets and meeting the rules, uh, maybe this grand bargaining idea can work with one caveat that I think is important. We have to forget about the legacy cost. The legacy cost is another issue. We have to agree on what we want to build, and then we will discuss how we pay for it. That's why I talk about the Hamiltonian moment. We'll decide what we will do with the liabilities already existing. But let's talk about what will happen for the future. And once we have the future agreed with this combination, then it will be a lot easier to decide how do we pay for the past. 
how we structure the legacy. That's that's sort of the the idea of the grand bargaining that we propose in the uh, in the in the report. Okay, thank you, Fernando. So, in short, the piecemeal approach of reforms will not work. Steady state is good, but it took a while to get here. Eyes on the future. Let's not forget the fiscal union. Gabriele, do you want to? Yeah, I want to, to come back to the point which Isabel has made, which is, I think, perhaps where we need to look at it again, which is where you said we all know what to do. I actually think that the source of the problems we're having trying to identify what is the need, what is needed for the grand bargain is exactly that we think that we know what to do, but in reality we don't. And my perception is that there are many I think most, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it, I, I, I think I, I have one view, and when I look at all the other, I have the feeling that, you know, everybody's looking from really his own or her own angle, and the big picture is missing. Uh, now, one, and, and so it's, in fact, I had actually the feeling there's, there are symptoms in many areas of underlying uh, the dynamics, which are not captured yet, and we are trying to fix the symptoms, not the problem. Everybody's come with the medicine to fix the symptom, and of course the other one is not taking, or is taking, and then is feeling worse, and then is accusing for the wrong medicine, or, or is not taking the medicine, and is accused of not being taking the medicine, despite all the good recommendations which should be given from one side to the other. So I think that's a general. Now, why is it a problem? I think, first of all, I think we're mi mixing different concepts. I, I personally not agree with the fact that you can move on a banking union only with the fiscal union. I, this is mixing two issues, which which Should can move which is different from risk sharing. I'm just fiscal union is something different. It's, it's, to me, it means agreeing on a budget and spending it, and you decide together how you do it. Whether it's for risk sharing, for national policies, this this is the fiscal union the way I see it. I don't think they need to go together. You might want to bring them together. But the necessity link the two, I think, link the two, I think it's just complicating the discussion rather than simplifying. The other point is about, uh, you know, it was Jean Pisani Ferius when I made this nice paper talking about is it a distribution or cognitive problem behind the lack of uh, progress on the reforms? I think it's seriously a cognitive issue. And in fact, I think it's because we are, we are not understanding what is functioning. As I said, I had the perception many of the things are symptoms we're looking at, and the symptoms are of an illness which is underlying the function of the EMU, which is relying on the function of the financial union, which relies on the function of the banking union, and which relies at the core of the financial system on national bond markets. The fact we have a symmetric bond structure, which is scarce, increasingly scarce is amplifying any shock. I mean, I've just gone back through all the shocks we lived in the last 25 years. It's all coming from outside. The 95 crisis was Mexico. Then we had, you know, the, 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 the bubble, the dot-com. Now we had everything. It all shock, shocks, and then they amplify through the spreads which we have in Europe. In 95, there was also the exchange rate in between the bond, the Italian BTPs, the Italian lira, the German mark, the German bund. We took out exchange rates in the middle. The rest is still there. So as long as we don't recognize that there is an issue which is having effect on the contact of monetary policy, which is having effect on the outcomes of fiscal policies, which is having effect on global demand for the euro and exchange rate and external imbalances, it's having effect on internal imbalance. All this, if we don't want to enter this discussion, I think we are not going to. So I'm happy that finally something which has always been put in the very long term is been starting to be considered as possible item for discussion 
for potentially addressing the state, state banking union. It's a very fair, but I tell you, three months ago, in, in January, when I was the first time in that, con I was asking, look, do you think we can bring the safe asset question and bond market question in the table of the island working group? People started laughing. Okay, so in six months, it's an immense success, and everybody's talking about it. You know, Juncker just talked, the, the ECB came out saying that it's important for because it's distorting the functioning of the bond markets, the lack of it. Um, uh, you know, we have the international role of the euro, we have many elements. So all this needs to be brought in a picture. I think unless we start having a proper discussion, what really functions, I'm not saying that I have the answer, but there's been topics which have been taboos. And I think unless we bring all of them, then we don't fix it. Then, and I think that's starting. Then I think there we will find a solution, but let's try, try to avoid putting things which are not strictly necessary. Thanks. Isabelle. Yes, I want. Yeah, I wanted to comment. I mean, on on something related to trust, because I think it's it's in, from the political point of view is very important. Is about uh, economic surveillance, and it's about the rules. Um, it has been mentioned. The Commission is is going to look into this. That the current rules are very complicated. Nobody understands them. Um, they're based on on, uh, on indicators that are contested by countries, including my own. Um, we and, and so it, it, the the whole exercise uh, at the end of the day is perceived by some countries as political middling, and that is very important that it's not so. To make sure that this part, I mean, I trust because you're doing what you need to do, and then I can move on other things. So I think this part. Uh, the part of reviewing how the six-pack and the two-pack and, and the rules uh, have been working is uh, extremely important and make them transparent and understandable um, so that there are no questions uh, in an ECOFIN or in a Eurogroup on, hmm, is the Commission really uh, doing his work or is just uh, being political? So that's, that's an important thing. And at the same time, I also believe that this, um, there's the, the, this underlying concept of virtuosity and non-virtuous countries. Um, I, I, mm, I mean, when, when uh, in a monetary union, there are spillover effects on both sides. And that's why the macroeconomic uh, imbalances procedures exist. Has it been used? No. Maybe it should. I just leave it there. Thank you so much for all of your contributions. I mean, I think it's clear from our panel that we could keep on doing this for a long time, but we will not. Um, I would like now to turn to our audience. So please come forward if you have any questions. Make sure your question ends with a question mark. And please be kind to identify yourself, your name and your institutional affiliation. I see a question over there. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, all of them were very interesting. Uh, my name is Pavlin Rosanov. I work for the European Parliament. Uh, I have a question primarily to uh, Mr. Fernandez. Uh, talking about the Eurozone and Maastricht criteria, let's take one of these Maastricht criteria, uh, uh, public debt as a percentage of GDP. It should not increase uh, uh, more than 60%. No, no country from the Eurozone should not have uh, more than 60% public debt of GDP. For more than a decade, the vast majority of the countries violate this criteria. And my questions are uh, two. Of, uh, I have two questions, very simple. One of them, 
Is this criteria relevant uh, uh, anymore? And if not, should we increase it officially to 80, 90, 100, 100, uh, 20% or something like that? Thank you. Any other questions? If so, we take them in a bundle. Yes, here in front, please. Thank you. Well, I have a question for the panel. And my question is on the... Uh, uh, please, the please, um, name yes. an institution. Uh, my name is Javier Arias, is, uh, representing BBVA. But I'm speaking on my own behalf, not to... Uh, <laughs> so the... Uh, uh, I, well, I had uh, some time ago the privilege to, to be in a meeting, and they were one of the... Uh, the number two of the Minister of Finance in, uh, of Germany. And he was saying that uh, I don't want to vote. So everyone knows his name, so I don't want to to quote it. But what he said that they were you were talking on uh, Isabel, you were talking on trust, and he said he was talking on paranoias. And and what he said that there were too many paranoias in Europe, and 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 he was blaming himself, saying that and the Germans they had the paranoia with the. Uh, with the Eddies, uh, the Italians, they had the paranoia with the uh, risk uh, reduction and so on and so forth. So the thing is, and he said, well, we have to find out a solution and we have to uh, probably to, to, to have a meeting on at, at closed doors and trying to find out what sort of paranoia we have, any one of us, and trying to fix it and trying to understand why and set a sort of, uh, well, roadmap or sort of solution which could be feasible meaningful and achievable. So I think that this is more a sort of, well, although this is very, it's a complex issue because that deserves a political, uh, huge political investment in, in this, in, in accomplishing this, this, this task. But at the end of the day, um, well, there is some time bought by the ECB doing what they are doing already. But time is not, you know, something which will, will, will last for forever. So, uh, and one of the intrinsic, um, in my view, uh, weaknesses of the of the euro is the uh, that we don't have a, a European treasury. So we have, and that that's we try to solve that by different with different, uh, um, institutional architecture. But that is a reality. So so and I think the markets they are they're always going to the weakest part of the. You know of the markets, and, and this is one of that. So my question is: it's a lack of time. Or time is running out, and 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 we everyone knows what is the the issue, what is the problem. So please do it. <laughs> um, there is a third question in the back, and are there any other questions? Well, we'll see after. Um, Oliver uh, Pitzek from the European Trade Union Institute. Um, I have a question regarding uh, disconnecting the banking union, progress in the banking union from uh, uh, the fiscal union. Now, I don't really understand the argument because uh, if you're saying, okay, we don't, we will not have a fiscal union, which is likely looking like that, right? But we will advance with the banking union and uh, we want to, we don't want to have Italian banks, say, holding more than 25% uh, of their assets as, uh, of their government bond assets as Italian ones. Um, then don't you aggravate the problem, right? Because the German banks may not want to hold more Italian government bond assets, and now you force the Italian ones to hold less. And exactly this amplifying mechanism that you talked about before, that we always see in the crisis, that is actually at the, 
at the core uh, of the problem of the eurozone because every every country that still has their own currency does not have this capital flight uh, that we have in the euro area uh, for for countries under pressure right so isn't that um, a problem and like shouldn't we rather not have a banking union uh, than if we don't get the fiscal union right thank you for your questions i think three is a, a lucky number given that we're three panelists in the table and one moderator. So uh, let's maybe start with the last question, if that's okay with you, yeah. disconnecting the banking union and fiscal union. Yeah, I didn't say that we should go for regulatory treatment and sovereign exposures. I, I said we need to deal with the question of sovereign exposures and the function in the market. How you solve it, I think I've not given the prescription which you are putting in my mouth. I haven't. It doesn't mean that you cannot consider it as part of a broader discussion. As I say, if you would have banks naturally shifting towards the European safe assets, there are no significant holdings into the bank's balance sheets, and therefore how you charge the capital in this respect, I think, becomes less relevant. Now, the implicit thing is that if you buy a European safe asset, you're and this one is being used to refinance the, the funding of part of the national debt, which is what you put uh, as a treasury task, in a way, you're de facto creating demand for members for the, the debt of every member state. So anybody in Germany is buying it, the European asset is buying 17% of Italian debt as well, and so on and so forth. So it's a forced coordination of buyer on the other side. Even if you don't like the other, you are buying some of it because it is being created in such a way that is safe enough and the, the asset reference for the banking system of Europe. So I think that's the way. Then the other question about fiscal union in general. I mean, the fact is that. We are designing everything, which at the end means that all the sharing is actually done by the private sector. So ADIS in itself, it's a private sector concept, right? It's being paid by contributions of the banks. Uh, you know, having a pan-European bank, which has operates across borders, as a diversified private sector part of the balance sheet. And then if on top of it is mainly a safe asset at the European level, it's fully fully diversified. So you know, for this, you don't need any fiscal union for doing that. But you created the asset, and this overcomes the current link between fiscal policies and the banking and banks and everything. So I think that's the, the focus where I think it's a priority. As I said, I, it, it doesn't exclude that you might decide to do more European bonds, like EIB, to do a project bond. I think there's nothing against it. But this will be a few more billions, not an asset for financial markets. So these two things are separate, and one might come on top of the other, perhaps later. I think it's easier to do that way rather than starting the other way around. Uh, Maastricht criteria or that? Uh, yes. but no, we're because I think. Yeah, but, but, but it's important. It's, it's an important point of disagreement that is in the table. Now, I fully agree with what Gabriela was saying in the first part of it that uh, uh, we should not, we would not worry about the sovereign exposure of banks if we have a Eurosave asset. Uh, but that's important to understand the logic of it. So it is, we are, we are attacking the symptom, not, not the illness. So fine. But we also have to consider that we will not have banks mergers and acquisitions unless banks can provide, can, can manage liquidity Europe-wide. And we won't have that until we have a European asset. So all these things are related. Now, what I don't agree is that I don't, when we look at the steady state of a banking union, I do not know of any existing surviving banking union that does not have a fiscal union in the following sense. I'm not saying we need to have the same taxes everywhere, but we need to have some fiscal capacity. That's a, that's a typical, that's typical a fiscal union. Uh, second, we need to have 
the ability to bring taxpayers' money to deal with banking issues, because I think we, are, we live under the illusion in the Bank Resolution and Restructuring Directive that there will be no taxpayers' money for the banking sector. That is just a myth. I mean, when, if, hopefully not, but if we, if and when we have another systemic banking crisis, there will be taxpayers' money. Let us not kid ourselves. And for that, we also need a fiscal union. And we need a fiscal union for the central bank to be able to have a monetary policy that is conducive and response to the fiscal policy. So we need, Gabriel, so we need a fiscal stance for the Eurozone. And to do we need to have a fiscal stance for the Eurozone. We will not do that through the fiscal rules. The fiscal rules are to avoid the externality that uh, the free rider problem imposes on the other members of the Union. That's period. That's the only reason why we need a fiscal, a fiscal rule. The fiscal union is about something much more important. That is to, to be able to have a process by which the European Union, the members, agree to a fiscal stance for the Eurozone. And that we need for the ECB to be. That's why I think we do need a fiscal union. Can I just ask a clarification? I don't know. If uh, our investment stabilization function would be adopted, mm -hmm. Would you call this a fiscal union or just I, a stabilization capacity? It is because, uh, because that's, I think, what you are no, asking no, no, no. for. It's a stabilization capacity. I think, it, I think we pollute the concept by saying, because fiscal union means, can mean to others many more things, and they, it's anathema for them. So it's so so it so exactly the same discussion we had on Bank Union. It was anathema, because it meant that German taxpayers' money was going to be used to rescue Spanish banks. And that's exactly what happens in any existing steady state monetary union in the world. There is no monetary union in the world where money from taxpayers in a certain region is not used to pay, let me use deliberately provocative this example, you know, in Germany to pay for Spanish banks. That is the way it happens. I don't, I don't want to use any other country in anybody's mind. That is exactly how it works all over the, the world. So if we look at the steady state of the banking union, it means a fiscal union. Because this is a quasi-fiscal item. But this is to be paid eventually always by the private sector. Right? It will never happen. I mean, we can dream <laughs> okay, of the private fine, sector. Right. That, they're not but so, it has never happened in history, so and it will never happen uh, in history. You are also one of those who classify the ESM as a fiscal transfer, then? Well, it is a fiscal it transfer. It is? Okay, fine. This I mean, and other themes in upcoming Bruegel events. No, uh, thank you so much. Can, uh, can yes. we address no, this issue one, of sovereign one debt? Minute. No, just one minute. Uh, because there's a specific question. I yes, think, absolutely. I have no interest in dealing with it. Uh, first, the, bast the master's criteria are or were the conditions for members to join the European Monetary Union. That doesn't mean that they have to meet them once they are in the Monetary Union. One point of clarification. Second, the Stability and Growth Pact has a debt rule, that has, and, and which supersedes this, this idea of limiting the debt. Uh, and this fiscal rule is more dynamic, as you know, or most people in the room know. Depending on your position, then you are asked to reduce at a certain speed the amount, the, the debt-to-GDP ratio, okay? Now, that has not always been met. In fact, it hasn't been met. That's why, again, and talking about fiscal, that's why we propose, I propose, uh, uh, and there is a, a very simple expenditure rule which will be adjusted on the amount of the debt-to-GDP ratio, and that's how it theoretically works in Spain, the expenditure rule that was adapted in the stability law. So there's a way to deal with this. 
I do not, I personally, I do not think it would be a good idea to say now we will put the threshold at 100% of GDP. Because then we will get into this heated discussion in the academia and in the policy world, how large can a debt to GDP ratio be being sustainable? And that depends on so many circumstances. One of them is trust, by the way, which we shouldn't get into it. At least I don't think we should get into it. So yes, we need a simple fiscal rule that, has, that is conducive to reduce the level of debt. Period. Good. I think this brings our event to a close. Thank you so much for coming and also for the ones on the live stream. Thank you for watching us. I hope to see you very soon. Please uh, help me in thanking our panelists for an amazing discussion and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you.